Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We're live on location. Yeah, it's so weird. One of us is on location. I'm actually just at home. (laughs) Yeah, I'm recording from Montreal right now. (laughs) Okay, tell tell me what you were just telling me. And then I said, wait, wait, wait. You have to wait for the people. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a few different things that are just like funky weird here. Okay. Um, So first of all, uh, all their soda cans and cans of any kind have gold tops, not silver. Like Like all of them? Everything. Is there a reason for that? I don't know. Okay. Well, that's fine. Quebec just likes to be different. They really, Um, it's true. They do. Like no shade whatsoever, but they just want to be different with everything. Separatists. Everything. Um, I went shopping and I found three pairs of jeans that I love. Okay. That's new because it's hard to find. You know what? I did get home and realize I accidentally just bought the same pair twice. So I really only found two pairs, but that's That's okay. okay. That is Um, okay. Other weird fact here, uh, the streetlights are not vertical. They're horizontal. Okay. So for anyone which... that doesn't know, we live in British Columbia and all of our – on Vancouver Island anyway, all of our streetlights are vertical. But I Across have... Canada, most of them are like that. After driving across it, this is I have seen place. some, maybe not in Canada, perhaps in the States that are horizontal. I've seen one or two, but they're always near railroad crossings. Okay. Maybe I I'm have just... not seen them anywhere else. Okay. Comment on this episode if the town where you live has streetlights that are vertical or horizontal yeah. in nature. We are curious yeah. to know. Um, but yeah, took the subway, the metro, the metro. Yeah, lots of, because it's a city, lots of yeah. uh, like public, public transit, transit and stuff like that. Another thing we're just not really used to Kinda where like we Vancouver, live. Vancouver where like if you're going yeah. into town, you don't take your car even if you have one. Because it's a nightmare. Yeah. And that's yeah. the same with here. Like, we're going tomorrow night. Well, tomorrow afternoon into the evening, we're going to uh, an entomology zoo. We're going to go see all the bugs. And I'm so excited. Okay, cool. And then at night, we're going to go to, like, a audio-visual light show dedicated to Pink Floyd. Okay. Okay. Pretty... This is cool. Yeah. We've done some fun stuff. We went to a beautiful wedding. On a vacation. And then, guys, as soon as Katie gets back, friends, she's moving. I am moving. I will have an office. Immediately. I will have a little recording studio. Which is going to be so fun because right now you, like, deconstruct your entire shared living space with Simon to record every single week. So I'm really excited for your office. It's a GD nightmare. I know for me getting an office was, like, a huge game changer. I'm very excited about my office. It's also just like my room. Like yeah, I have like my clothes are the... going to be in there too. Yeah, I have like you can see I don't have yeah. all my clothes in here, but like some cute outfits on like a clothing rack. But as somebody who has lived on the island my whole life and has kind of moved to various places, you I don't know if anyone else is like this, but I'm sure lots of people are. You have <laughs> that like bin of things that you've just kind of moved around. From place yeah. to place to like place. Like little tchotchkes, you electronics, rarely, everything. Like, I rarely open it. It's just, like, my It's your things. memory bin. Sure. And 
I like having a, my own room for those things. It just makes me feel oh, like yeah. when I was like a kid again and I had my own room, you know? Mm, yes. Anyways. I I'm do understand about your that office. feeling. But we are on part two of <laughs> the Andrew Bagby, Shirley Turner story. Um, yeah, we're on part two. I did want to say thank you to Robin for suggesting this case because I didn't shout out your actual name on our last episode. I just knew it was a case suggestion. But um, thank you so much for the suggestion for this case specifically and anybody else who might have sent it in. I just saw that Robin sent us a pretty like long email, which was great. Thank you so much um, for you. the support and the suggestion. We always appreciate it. Uh, but we have a lot more stuff to get through today, so I think we'll probably hop right in unless Katie has anything else to share from her travels. No. Okay. So when we left off last week, I believe we were just talking about some of the evidence that the police were gathering against Shirley in the murder of her ex-boyfriend, Andrew, mm -hmm. um, who was found... On the morning of November 6, 2001, shot five times uh, in the parking lot of Keystone State Park in Derry Township, Pennsylvania. So we are talking about Shirley. So the investigators have all these cell phone records. They have Internet records. They have statements from Andrew's friends and colleagues. Um, again, if you haven't listened to part one, please do so. Lots going on uh, over there. But... The police at this point feel they have enough evidence to actually arrest Shirley Turner for the murder of 28-year-old Andrew Bagby. Um, however, by the time the Pennsylvania State Police actually issued the warrant for her arrest, Shirley had where fled. She? she fled yeah. back to Newfoundland where she was from. So Shirley was actually from Newfoundland. And we have so, a runner, people. We have a runner. Exactly. So she fled back to Canada. Um and I think we were talking about it a little bit on the last episode, or maybe we weren't. Maybe just me and you were talking about it after <laughs> after we stopped we recording, that. because we do that. Uh, but either way, she fled back to Canada, where she's from, and this now makes it very difficult to send her back to the U.S. to stand trial, because Canada is very uh, careful to send anyone back to if death possibly the death penalty could be on the table which it was in pennsylvania mm -hmm. um so yeah shirley goes back to canada she first went to toronto on november 12 2001 and then resettles in st john's newfoundland with her oldest son she did technically have a return ticket booked home for november 30th uh some people think she never planned on returning back to the States on November 30th and just like had this return ticket. But coincidentally, her oldest son was actually in a serious car accident like the same day she got back. So this gave her a reason to just stay in Canada. Okay. Yeah, I don't think she was ever going to go back. No. I think the ticket was just kind of a formality. Yeah, I wonder if maybe she like knew that it would look better and like she didn't run away like i wonder yeah. if she had that much forethought she obviously pre-planned this murder based on all the information that we know um so it's possible that she had enough like forethought to to kind of make yeah. that in alibi for the whole running away or fleeing argument that will yeah. inevitably come to her right 
So she does her best to stay under the radar in Canada. However, shortly after she gets there, the Pennsylvania State Police and the Royal Newfoundland Constabularies, the RNC, Intelligent Unit, collaborated and arrested her on December 12th. The Royal Newfoundland Constabulary is Newfoundland and Labrador's provincial police service. So it's not the... RCMP, which is the federal police service, but it's actually Newfoundland and Labrador's own provincial police service. Not uncommon. Yeah, absolutely. 2001. Shirley is released on bail the same day by Justice David Russell. Yeah. Just let go the same day. bother? Right. Shirley was not considered a a flight risk, even though she had literally fled from where she committed the crime in another country. She literally flighted. She literally flighted. She should be a risk. Yeah. Her lawyer argued that Shirley did not flee the country and that she went back to Canada for emotional support. When they entered the courtroom that day, a decision had already been made between the prosecutor and defense to release Shirley, and there was really, like, no hearing to be had. To be released on bail, Shirley was required to have $75,000 in what's called sureties. Um, So this is not actually bail money. Nobody has to pay anything. This is just a promise to pay if the person doesn't show up in court, basically. Yeah, so if she doesn't, they'll be charged with a failure to appear. And then they'll be like, okay, now you have to pay the late fee. Yeah. So she was able to get the 75k sureties from friends... Uh, and her psychiatrist. We will come back to that. That seems like a conflict of interest, but okay. Yeah, we're going to come back to that. Oh, I assumed so. Yeah. As a part of her bail release, Shirley was required to surrender her passport, visit the RNC weekly, promise to to stay in the area, and refrain from contacting Andrew's family and like there was a list of a bunch of friends like anyone that was involved in the case basically anyone that had given statements things like that so yeah she has to visit them weekly surrender her passport refrain from contacting anyone like pretty basic things yes seems pretty straightforward yeah the Bagbees actually attempted to get Shirley to come back to the U.S. by inviting her to Andrew's memorial service in California. So they kind of try to bait her to get back in the U.S. Um, but okay. Shirley does not take the bait. Dang. Yeah. This, uh, so this bail release obviously begins the extradition process against her, which is lengthy. Uh, to be returned to Pennsylvania and tried for Andrew's first-degree murder, because that's what she was being charged with. Okay. Shirley then began her own appeal against the extradition order, arguing she should not be sent to the USA, and this ended up being, like, a years-long, drawn-out process. This was a lengthy procedure. I don't understand why it needed to take that long in any way, shape, or form. I know. We're going to go through it. Um, There's just a lot of delays on their part on the defense part so her defense attorney kind of just constantly makes these arguments to delay the process uh that's really what draws the 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 process out the most which is not uncommon we've seen it many times before yeah i'm just i don't know i wasn't surprised i guess i'm kind of surprised to hear it in this case in a way yeah you're gonna be even more surprised as we move through this episode because this is a shocking case 
Great. Just on Feb- great. <laughs> on February 15th, 2002, so that's about three months after Shirley returns to the returns to Canada and then then is subsequently arrested and released on bail. Okay. After her like four hours in jail. Yeah, it's like two to three months after that. She is sorry, prosecutor Mike Madden acknowledges that the extradition request has been received. Okay. They adjourn until March eleventh, where they decided to then reconvene to set a date for the extradition hearing. Oh my god, it's a meeting to plan the meeting. Correct. Oh, could have been there's an email. So ma- there's so many of these. Could have been an email. This is adjourned again until March 25th, where the date of the extradition hearing was set for May 27th. On May 27th, 2001, the extradition hearing is again adjourned until June 11th due to an Birthday. argument. Is it a birthday? We haven't yeah. done that in a while. I know. I just thought of it. <laughs> so this adjournment was due to an argument regarding the translation from English to French mm. with respect to Section 32 of the Extradition Act. Too bad they couldn't ask me. I could have had someone <laughs> lickety split whip that up for them. Right? <laughs> So an official extradition, or sorry, an official translation was supposed to be done on June 11th. However, that ends up being like a five-minute hearing, and the judge basically says that he wasn't in a position to rule on the translation and adjourns it again until July 30th. Why wouldn't you have somebody Did they like who read can? it to him and they like, oh, yeah, I don't speak French. I can't help with this <laughs> at the end of it. I hate to laugh, but it's like so it's, outrageous it's that so I have to. It's fucking dumb. It's really dumb. So they adjourn this again until July 30th. So we're at like My six mouth months. is just like, uh, Six what? months just to get the hearing done. This <laughs> bullshit. What happened to a speedy trial? Right. Also, it's kind of an important one. Well, that's just it. And then the longer that this goes, exactly what you're saying, that gives the defense the grounds to say, like, well, now we're outside the speedy speedy trial. And honestly, this, the longer you wait in any part of, like, I feel like the court proceedings opens the door for, like, appeals out the yin-yang. Yep. 100%. So we're going to just, like, put a pin in that for a moment. Pinny. Put a pin in it. We'll come back to it. She panned. There's a lot going on. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, when Shirley returned back to Canada, she found out that while she had initially lied and told Andrew that she was pregnant in a ploy to get him to stay with her, she had actually become pregnant with his child. Yes. She had called Kate and David Bagby and told them she was pregnant with Andrew's baby. And while they weren't like, they weren't sure whether they should believe her or not. They were a little apprehensive they knew that there was definitely a possibility. Oh, yeah. So on February 5th, 2002, Shirley publicly announced that she was four months pregnant in a press conference in St. John's, Newfoundland. <laughs> this press conference is the first time that Andrew's friends find out about baby Zachary, which is oh, what she ends up naming him. I know. The Bagby's. Yeah, the Bagbys quit their jobs in California. So Andrew's parents literally quit their jobs, uprooted their life, moved to Newfoundland, and started the process of basically a custody battle for this mm-hmm. baby. Um, so they first 
work to get visitation rights and then they begin a custody battle and this is all happening at the same time as all this extradition stuff that I just was telling you about is happening. Fuck. Okay. So she's in and out of court. Yep. Many times for all different things. Like she might as well live there. Yeah. She probably has a monthly parking pass. There's like videos of her very pregnant in court. Wow. Okay. Zachary Andrew Turner was born on July 18th, 2002 in St. John's, Newfoundland, while Shirley was out on bail. Kate and David went to the hospital to see Zachary, but Shirley would not let them in the room. As soon as Zachary was born, the Bagby's lawyer filed two applications with the Unified Family Court, one for a DNA test and another for custody. Um, so they basically needed the DNA test to yeah. prove the baby was Andrew's in order to go for custody. And that would be the same whether Andrew was alive or not. Andrew yeah. would have to prove, like, so just to be clear in case that's not the case everywhere, like, that is mm-hmm. standard proceeding for a custody hearing here. Yeah. The Bagbees were told that the Long Canada moves quite slowly. Um, I feel like this was an understatement in this case. While they needed the DNA test to prove that Zachary was Andrew's baby, as soon as Kate and David saw him open his eyes, there was, like, no No question. Zero question that this baby belonged to their son. He looks just like him. Yeah, he's really cute. So, like I mentioned, the Bagbees uprooted their entire lives. They ended up spending all of their savings just to try and protect baby Zachary. Jacqueline Brazil, who was the lawyer for the Bagbees, actually went to see the regional director of child and youth family services in St. John's to basically advise them that the Bagbees had concerns for the welfare and safety of the baby because of the fact that the mother was accused of premeditated murder of their son, the father. Exactly. The Bagbees ended up having to literally play nice with Shirley for months in order to be able to visit baby Zachary. Like, the audio clips are gut-churning. They, like, are so awful to hear what they had to do with the person that they knew killed their only son. Well, I mean, I think we see this a lot where someone in the family is trying to get some information or something and they have to pretend like they have, A, no idea or something's going on or like, Mm -hmm. you know, they have to play a completely different role. And I couldn't imagine being like, hey, sweetie, how are you doing? How's my grandson? And being so Mm -hmm. nice to this girl to try and be Mm -hmm. like, oh, gross. Yeah, they did. They did put up a pretty hard boundary in terms of not talking about the case because she constantly would try and basically like bring up, bring it up, and they well, kind of wants to create more grounds for appeal. Like you shouldn't yeah. be talking about it behind closed doors with each other. Yeah, so they were really, really good about being like, "We've told you before. We will only have this conversation through our lawyers." Like they're very firm on that, but otherwise, they had to be so nicey, nicey. I just I, it was hard to listen to, if I'm being honest. So when they finally do negotiate with her, Shirley agreed to give them one hour a week. During these visits, the Bagbees were fully searched and monitored by a supervisor while Shirley waited in the next room as if they were the ones being accused of a heinous and violent crime. Hmm. And 
innocent until proven guilty is a huge part of the law in Canada, and I understand that, but this is still wild to me. There's precautions that should be taken until certain things are proven. I 100% agree. Yeah. Especially when a baby is involved. A baby. Not a even baby. like a kid who's in school eight hours a day and there's other things going on. Like an infant. Mm-hmm. When the ba- uh, when the Bagby, sorry, took Shirley back to court to get more time with Zachary, Shirley tries to use like a bunch of her manipulation tactics in the courtroom. She told the court that the Bagbys had kept Zachary longer than they were supposed to. And that he was, quote, distraught when he was returned to her. Um, I don't remember. uh, Sorry, I don't know if you remember, but these visits were literally supervised. Mm -hmm. And so the supervisor in charge was like, that never happened. Yeah, they're like, you were also in the next room. Like I was we here, had, they were here. We were all in the same place. You can't lie about it. We had to supervise the visit. How is it possible that they would have given him back late? Also, if it was late, you would have just banged on the door and been like, I want my kid back. Yeah, so you she tries a bunch of her shit in the courtroom, but it doesn't work. Um, and they do end up getting more time with Zachary. Now, as promised in episode one, I did find out a little bit more about like the custody situation regarding Shirley's other children. Mm. So the information I did find uh, in October 1993, there was a report that Shirley was under investigation for abusing the oldest two of her other three children. One of her former roommates had been concerned about some of her behavior towards the children in like leaving them alone for days at a time, like young children and uh, like physically abusing them with like her open fist, belts, etc. So this roommate had reported it to a psych- uh, psychiatrist at the university that he was attending. The psychiatrist later filed a report with social services and the children confirmed the allegations. Nobody from the Department of Social Services ever actually contacted Shirley and the case was dropped on January 11th, 1994. So Shirley retained legal custody of all three of these children and then in 1994, she makes the decision to start the journey to medical school. Um, so like we mentioned in episode one, this is kind of when she tries to like pawn her kids off on random family members. Mm -hmm. Um, and these kind of attempts don't really stick. And so this is when she kind of just ends up sending them to live with their fathers. Okay. Um, I did find out though that her student loans in university were still calculated based on her having full-time custody of those three children. (gasps) And she wasn't caring for them at all. And she often used her kids as an excuse for, like, absences during residency. I was going to say, yeah. Like it she didn't have them. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a lot of government money monthly. So that's just a little bit about her former parenting. It's not great. It's not good in any it's, way, shape, or form. And, and I think that the reason it's important to share all of this is um, because there's going to come a point in this episode where it's all going to, you're going to be like, what? Like okay. in, term, in terms of, um, 
yeah, just surely being free and all of these sorts of things. It's like I'm just <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to lay the groundwork of the type of person and the type of things that are on record before all of this happens. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem good for her. I no. don't know how any of this is even transpiring by her what fourth child. Mhm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Andrew's childhood friend Kurt Kewen finds out about Shirley being pregnant with Andrew's baby and decides to embark on a documentary project to make a film about Andrew for Zachary. So he is a documentary filmmaker and he decides he wants to make this documentary film project so that he can like show it to Zachary when he is older. Okay, um, that's really sweet. Isn't that so sweet? It's um, and so it's, sweet. It is called D- Dear Zachary. You can watch it. I found it on YouTube. It was really hard to find on any like streaming services, but I was able to watch it on YouTube. But it's honestly one of the best true crime documentaries I've ever watched just because it's so personal and shows like so many home videos between Andrew and his friends because he is... He had this group of friends that he like grew up with from being kids. And so there's so much footage. Um, it's it's incredibly well done. I highly recommend watching it after you're done listening to these episodes or before or during whatever floats your boat, really. So he wanted Zachary to get to know Andrew through the lens of the people who knew him and loved him. Kurt and Andrew, like I said, were childhood friends, and in the documentary, um, he kind of describes how Andrew was in every single film that he created growing up, because Kurt was, like, always into filmmaking, was always making his friends, like, make short movies and stuff, and so they show these clips of Andrew in all these, like, films when they're, like, 12. It's really funny, but... (laughs) Uh, Andrew also supported Kurt by giving him $2,000 for one of his films while Andrew was saving money for his own medical school. So they were really, really close friends. Yeah. So we're going to just jump back to the extradition hearing now. I'm aware that this episode is all over the place, but there's just so much happening. And it's not that all over the place. This is how my brain pieced it together. Okay. On September 19th, 2002, so this is like two months after Zachary is born, nine months after this whole ordeal has begun, uh, the extradition hearing finally begins. Okay. Shirley's lawyer, Randy Pierce, attempts once again to delay the case with a bunch of different claims. I'm literally not even going to go into them. But the judge at the time, Derek Green, basically told him to get lost and set the extradition hearing for November 14th, 2002. Okay. November 14th, 2002, Justice Derek Green ruled that a properly instructed jury could likely find Shirley guilty of the offense she was being charged with. She was ordered to return to the Clarenville Correctional Center for Women while the decision regarding her extradition was pending a ruling from the Minister of Justice. So during this time, miraculously, Shirley agrees to let the Bagbees have full custody of baby Zachary. Um, Hmm. One of the conditions, however, was that Zachary had to be brought to the jail for visits once a week, which was a two-hour drive there and back. So the Bagbees had to drive two hours there 
then wait there while Zachary played and hung out with his mom and then drive two hours back. Um, not God. only did they have to drive to Clarenville weekly, and keep in mind, this is winter in Newfoundland. Oh, fuck. Okay. Four hours a week of driving in, like, Atlantic Canada in the middle of the winter, which is not cute weather-wise. No. Uh, I, I couldn't survive because I'm an island baby and our weather is so mild. Uh, the Temperate. winters there are extreme, so that's yeah. all I'm going to say. So they not only had to do these, like, brutal drives to have Zachary visit, Shirley weekly but they also had to do a one hour per day phone call with her with Zachary he's a year old so they're on the phone with her for an hour a day hmm, okay it's awful Andrew's father David said that having to bring Zachary to prison and communicate with Shirley constantly was about as hard as it gets for them like mm -hmm. it was awful for them um yeah, again, the person... She's torturing them. They knew the person that they were talking to murdered their only son, but they said that they did it for Zachary. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So Shirley is in jail for two months, uh, awaiting a decision to extradite her for the murder of Zachary. And on January 8th, 2003, Justice Gail Welsh agrees to release Shirley on bail. Why? Uh, that, so this one's actually really hard. This is kind of what I was talking to earlier when I said I'm laying all these things out so that when we get to this point, everybody is like, what the fuck? So Justice Gail Wells, she writes in her decision to grant bail to Shirley that while the offense Shirley was charged with was violent and serious, it was, quote, not directed at the public at large. The decision further stated that, quote, there is no indication of a psychological disorder that would give concern about potential harm to the public generally. Okay, then. Let's just let that one sink in. Yeah. As if there's not a I ton have no words. of evidence to show otherwise. I have no words. Uh, in this decision, the judge plays heavily to the fact that Shirley is a doctor. Um, it's very classist and very like, oh, well, she must be a smart, upstanding citizen because she's a doctor and is so smart. No. It's it's really, really it's – it, this is a really questionable decision. And a, there's honestly a petition online to, like, disband this judge that I found. Uh, a lot of people were, wow. really, were really angry about this. I'm not really in, that surprised. Yeah. In her decision, the judge also cited the fundamental right to be presumed innocent. Prosecutors in Pennsylvania warned the Newfoundland courts that Shirley Turner was potentially violent and a suicide risk. They provided the court documents showing the attempted suicide in 1999 at the end of another relationship uh, they also provided documents to show that Shirley had a history of upwards of eight people who had previously had restraining orders against her. And there was plenty of evidence of dangerous and erratic behavior, especially in romantic relationships. 
There was also documentation at this time from her stay in prison that Shirley had been on suicide watch every 15 minutes and was actively seeing a psychiatrist. Okay. But Justice Welsh still felt that since Shirley had shown that she was not a risk the last time she was out on bail, that there was no reason to not grant bail a second time. Now, don't get me wrong. I also agree that if someone has been out on bail once and been fine, they probably will be. But not in a circumstance where they have since had weird, erratic, escalating behavior. And a baby. Yeah. She's had a baby who is the product of the person she's accused of murdering Mm -hmm. since the last time she was out on bail. Like, a lot of things are different. So messed up. So, Shirley is again released on $75,000 in sureties and a list of conditions. It's never enough. There would never be enough conditions for this woman to be out on bail. Yeah, so this, again, this decision was very controversial. Yeah. Zachary is sent back to live with Shirley, uh, which was awful for the Bagbees. They had previously been using a third party to arrange their visits. However, Shirley would use this a lot to just be like, oh, like maybe tomorrow. And then the Bagbees had kind of no way of being like, no, we're coming to get him now because it was just the third party. Um, And so in order to allow more time with Zachary, the Bagbees agreed to communicating with Shirley directly for visits. It's risky. Yeah, but again, like, all of this they're doing with Zachary's, like, safety in mind. And also their end game is custody of him. And so they want him to be as comfortable with them as possible. Like, they want him to know them and love them already so that the transition to being with them full time is seamless. Yeah. So they're willing to do whatever to have more time with this baby just to make it easier for him. I know they are like the sweetest, most stand up people ever. And it's crazy to think about what they had to endure Mm -hmm. um, throughout this entire ordeal. So the Bagbees, they agree to a schedule of visits, which was that they would get six visits with Zachary every two weeks, including one overnight. And they were made the first choice for babysitting. If Shirley went back to jail, the Bagbees would have Zachary full-time. Granted, they agreed to maintain the prison visits that were going on before. And the one-hour phone calls, I'm sure. Yeah, kind of like all of those same visitation things were on the line. Um, The Bagbees were thrilled with this, even if it meant having to see and talk to Shirley. Um, Yeah, so this is kind of how it goes for the next couple of months. Sweet. Seven months later. Not sweet, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's not what they want. They want to, him to be it's in something. their care because it also seemed from the documentary, because I, I obviously watched it, that just from the videos that you could tell, like, Zachary's a baby, but he can tell that he's getting genuine love and affection and care from his grandparents, and he's getting very, like, superficial love and care and affection from the mom because they show a couple of videos where like he very obviously chooses his grandma kate over shirley and they even say in the documentary that like it made shirley really mad because she could see it too um 
But yeah. God. Seven months after Shirley is released, on August the 18th, 2003, a couple vacationing in Newfoundland from Ontario was walking their dog along Manuel's Beach in Conception Bay at around 7 p.m. when they found the body of a woman who was later identified as Shirley Turner. Shirley and Zachary had both been reported missing earlier that day. Police and the Coast Guard officials were called, and a short time later, the body of 13-month-old Zachary was also found on the beach just meters from Shirley. Who can do that? It's so sad. I could cry. I don't cry very often in documentaries either because I watch so many of them, but I sobbed in this documentary. I could see why. Yeah, it's awful. This was one month to the day after Zachary's first birthday. (laughs) Yeah. The Bagby's lawyer, Jacqueline Brazil, was the one who had to break the news to them that Zachary was found dead with Shirley on Conception Beach. David said he physically saw Kate's knees, like, buckle and her legs give out. It's because they knew all along that there was a potential that she was going to hurt this child. A hundred percent. She knew that. Her gut instinct. Mm-hmm. And then yep. it ended up they happening. They both knew. They both it's knew. Like, it's embarrassing. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It's just gut-wrenching. And preventable, as we're going to well, That's what I mean about. by embarrassing. Like, yeah. there were so many times where we could have, like, and I say we as in, like, the police force and, mm-hmm. like, social services of every aspect could have done more for this family, for this little boy. Yeah. Now, in the months leading up to this incident, uh, Shirley's extradition to the United States to stand trial for the murder of Andrew had finally been ordered. So this is just two months before this on June 11th, 2003. Um, Her lawyer was in the process of appealing the decision once again. Upon finding out the news that Shirley had taken hers and Zachary's life, her lawyer at the time, Randy Pierce, said he was shocked and that his client never gave any indication that she was contemplating suicide. Uh, It was Randy who was called to officially identify the bodies of both Shirley and Zachary because the families were too distraught to do so. So the lawyer had to come and identify both bodies. I could not imagine having to go identify remains of a child. Yeah. And I don't mean their child. I mean, like... In general. And, I can't yeah. either. Nope. But both, yes. Um, trigger warning for this next part, because it does involve the description of unaliving. Caused, yeah. An autopsy was done and determined that Zachary and Shirley had both died in what the authorities called a murder-suicide Evidence showed that Shirley had mixed a drug like lorazepam or Ativan, like her anxiety medication or her, mm-hmm. yeah, into Zachary's baby formula and then also taken a heavy dosage herself. She then strapped Zachary to her chest with a sweater and dove straight into the Atlantic Ocean. The autopsy showed that both Shirley and Zachary died of drowning. Um, It was later discovered that Zachary was already unconscious during the event from the drugs that he had ingested, so he didn't suffer. Um, But still, it doesn't matter. He suffered at some point. 
Yep. Shirley had been last seen leaving her house at around 11.30 p.m. the night before, and her lawyer had expected a phone call on Monday. So this the day they were found, August the 18th, was a Monday. So she was last seen leaving her house at 11.30 p.m. on the Sunday night, the night before. Her lawyer was expecting a phone call from her on Monday to go over the appeal of her extradition, and Shirley never attended this phone call. Um, they were reported missing at some at some point, and then the same day they were reported missing is when the couple finds Shirley. Yeah. Yeah. Investigators are able to piece together that in July of 2003, Shirley had become involved with a young man that she met at a bar. They went on a couple of dates. However, this guy's, like, friends showed him these news articles that Shirley was a murderer potentially had murdered her like last boyfriend so this guy decides to stay away from her and is like sorry never mind i'm good and and it's after this yeah she calls and leaves him like 300 phone messages (gasps) or something yeah yeah it's after this in like a blind state of something on the evening of august 17th that she drives and parks her car near the man's house which was close to the beach she was found and she allegedly left some items like a photo of her and zachary and a few other things on the guy's front lawn to try and frame him for their death So that's how they kind of figure out that it was in like this irate state of anger at this guy for rejecting her that she did this because she like parks near his car and puts a bunch of random crap on his lawn. Yeah. Whoa. I know. Just wild. I have no words. As you can tell. I'm not usually speechless, but in this case... This case makes me uncomfortable in so many ways. Yeah, it it's, makes me a little nauseous for sure. Mm-hmm. A lot nauseous, not a little. So having lost their only child and now their only grandchild, the Bagbys basically said that they thought about taking their own lives. Um, David... David also admitted to, like, fantasizing about killing the judge who granted Shirley's bail. But the Bagbys decided that their energy would be better used on making sure that this never happened again. So they said... good human beings. I know. And what they do next is, like, so admirable, but they shouldn't have had to do it. This couple from California shouldn't have had to uproot their entire lives, use all of their savings just to try and prevent children from being in harm of their, from their own parents who are accused of murder. Yeah, it's not that simple. Yeah, it's not. So they set their sights on Ottawa to lobby for criminal code changes to make it more difficult for people accused of serious crimes to be let out on bail. Their goal was to make it so that anyone accused of murder was denied bail. Point blank. 
Okay, yeah. The Bagbys also filed a complaint regarding the social services system that they said failed Zachary. The Bagbys had expressed concern, as I mentioned, to the St. John's Regional Director of Child, Youth, and Family Services that their infant grandson was in the custody of someone who had been accused of murdering his own father, and they just never heard back from them. What the hell? They just never heard back. Everything about... Everyone involved in this failed this child except his grandparents. 100%. I agree with you. Um, Because, yeah, the Bagbys then continued to have to go through visitation and custody hearings to prove that they were fit to have Zachary. That is... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, have they not shown enough? Nope. Okay. Well, you know, once once this happened, then I think people listened to them, but... You know, why, why does it, it take, take that multiple tragedies for that is what we would like to know. Yep. Uh, so an inquiry into the death of Zachary was led by Dr. Peter Markestein, who concluded that Zachary's death had been entirely preventable and that he should not have been the care of his, of his mother. Fair. So this review concluded that the province's social services system failed Zachary uh, Dr. Markestein is based in Winnipeg and said he found fundamental flaws through the child protective system that dealt with the Turner case in the months leading up to the murder-suicide. In finding that Zachary's death could have been prevented, he determined that poor communication between officials contributed to the sequence of events that triggered the tragedy. He found yeah. that if he found that officials who were working on the presumption of Shirley's innocence were more concerned with the welfare of Shirley than of Zachary. It was found during his investigation to do the report that Shirley had frequently asked for and received help from social workers with like dozens of visits made on her behalf, like for her to get help. But Zachary's needs were like rarely assessed or taken into consideration. Super weird. Very, yes. And I mean, it's possible that the assumption here is that if we help the mother be the best she can be, then Zachary's needs will be taken care of. But I think that there's just like massive overlooking in this yeah. whole case. Um, the focus on this review was on the social service system specifically and the lack of protection for children and not on like the justice system and the bail issue. He did, however, recommend that a separate review be done on the justice system's handling of the case and raised the issue of how bail was granted to Shirley Turner in January of 2003. Or in general, because she was granted bail twice. Yeah. Yeah. Questions. But I think the biggest one is the January 20... Sorry, 2023. 2003 release. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, how did that one ever pass? Right. I think that that's that's the one that's under the biggest question at this point, because at that point she had it had been decided that like a jury could find her guilty of this offense and that she is going to end up getting sent. Yeah. Right. It wasn't just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like she's getting arrested. Like there was just so much more evidence at that point. True. 
Dr. Markstein also noted a, quote, obvious difference in opinion between caseworkers and their managers who recognized a possible need for long-term intervention with Shirley. The manager's concerns, however, were never communicated to the frontline staff. So the people that would need to know. Yep. Okay. It was noted in this report that Shirley's daughter also suffered in terms of her educational development as well as guilt over her mother and half-brother's death. Um, Shirley's daughter was living with her for a period of time while she was out on bail, so it was determined that, like, there was severe lack in her care as well. Wow. Uh, She is now in the care of other family members. Yeah. Marcusine also found that Shirley had been under the care of at least four psychiatrists during her lifetime. Um, a quote from the report stated, nowhere did I find any ongoing assessment of the safety needs of the children. So in total, 58 so recommendations. her own health. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And like the psychiatrists weren't prioritizing the children's needs also, right? Like, yeah. They're not finding ev- any evidence that anybody asked. Yeah. Or looked into how the Nobody's kids were checking doing. checking in on them, yeah. No. In total, 58 recommendations were made to prevent something like this from happening again. Uh, so this is a small win for the Bagbees, uh, especially just the note that Zachary's death was preventable. However, Mm -hmm. they are still not satisfied and they continued setting their sights on criminal code changes with respect to the bail law in Canada. Wow. Okay. In 2006, David and Kate Bagby also filed a complaint with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, So this is where we're going to bring up Shirley's psychiatrist who posted her bail surrogates. It was reported that Shirley was a patient of psychiatrist Dr. John Doucette in 2001, and at the time she became his patient, a warrant had already been issued for her arrest. Okay. Dr. Doucette was treating Shirley actively in December 2001 when she was uh, first released on $75,000 bail surrogates. This is when it's discovered that it was actually Dr. Doucette that put up $65,000 of those surrogates for Shirley. And then it was $5,000 each from two friends. Um, And so David and Kate Bagby filed this complaint claiming that this is professional misconduct. She's not paying her own bail. No. At all. Like. Her psychiatrist posted almost all of it. I know, and that's so much fucking money. And like, yeah, I could agree with what Katie said. A bit of a conflict of interest, Uh, (laughs) to to put it lightly. So after this complaint is filed, a hearing is held, and Dr. Doucette claims that in retrospect, he made an error in judgment, but that at the time he was acting out of compassion and a genuine concern for her well-being. Now, I mean, it is important to note that Shirley is very manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very possible that she manipulated him into thinking that, like, they're just all out to get her. This is all a big misunderstanding. Yeah. But at the same time, you are a professional with an obligation. And there's there has to be a certain level of, like, client psychiatrist boundaries yeah you know what i mean there has to be yeah 
No, I agree. So, so inappropriate. It's yeah, I know. This whole oh. case is just like, how did any of this happen? Dr. Doucette testifies at an inquiry that he recognizes now he should have consulted a colleague before posting the bail. Um, Dr. John Doucette was eventually found guilty of professional misconduct for posting bail sureties for Shirley Turner. Good. Yes. Uh, and the Newfoundland Ministry of Justice also admitted in 2006 that their handling of this case was, quote, inadequate. Hmm. Okay. Kudos to you. Yeah. For owning up. David Bagby wrote a book about this entire experience. Uh, it was published on March 15th, 2007, and it is called Dance with the Devil. Its Ugh. first printing sold out in four weeks, and it became a national seller. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, the last part of this story, if you will, in early 2009, Kirk Kewen, who, if you remember, was Andrew's childhood friend who created the documentary Dear Zachary, sent out letters to every member of parliament and senator offering to screen the film for them. So he literally was like, hey, every single member of parliament, I need to show you this movie. A special screening was held in an auditorium in March of 2009 in Ottawa. Uh, it moved a few of the members of parliament, and that fall, a private member's bill was introduced by Newfoundland MP Scott Andrews, um, who was one of the members of parliament that was moved by this film. The bill was proposed to add a clause to the criminal code to say that bail could not be granted if it was deemed necessary for the protection of anyone under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. Bill C-464 became known as Zachary's Law and was pressed for passage in March 2010 before the Commons Justice and Human Rights Committee. Bill 464 was passed in December 2010 um, making it law that bail could not be granted if it was deemed necessary for the protection of anyone under the age of 18. After this law was passed, for the first time since the death of Andrew and Zachary, the Bagbys celebrated Christmas. Aww. They had not celebrated Christmas since Andrew died. God. Or no, sorry, since Zachary died, because they did have Zachary for one Christmas. Oh, yeah. This poor family. I know. It's awful. They just um, lost everything. Yeah, they really did. And they tried for a long... Not that it matters, like, losing a child, no matter if you got, like, pregnant the first time or the 30th time, is gut-wrenching and awful. Mm -hmm. But, like, they tried for so long to get pregnant with Andrew, yeah. and he was, like, their miracle baby. Well, and he just seemed to be, like, this perfect little kid, and mm -hmm. he grew up just, like, very well-rounded and just, like, mm -hmm. normal, like, a truly normal kid. And he had, like, so many good friends, and it was actually really, really sad and also, like, lovely in the documentary. The kids all always tell them, like, you still have children, you still have us because like we grew up in your house because I guess Andrew's house was like the house everyone went to and so yeah. these kids who were his friends are just doing everything they can to like make 
sure Kate and David know that they're still loved and that they like they don't they're, they're not parents. childless. They still have kids. They still have yeah. all of these kids who they also helped raise. Um, That's so sweet. So it was just very, very, very sad. I love that. Yeah. And Kurt said that finishing the documentary was like finishing one final movie with Andrew, which was also oh. gut-wrenchingly sad. Oh. Yeah. But it is. So while they had been hoping for a blanket denial of bail for anyone accused of murder, the Bagbys felt that the passing of Zachary's law was better than nothing and a win in their eyes. Yeah, I do agree based on where they're at and what is possible. Yeah. I think that is a win. Yeah, so that is the case of Andrew Bagby and Zachary Turner. Um, it was very sad. And yeah, there's just a lot of ball dropping. That's like the only there's that's like the understatement of the year. But I don't yeah. know how else to put it. There's just so many balls dropped and people not doing their jobs properly. That could have led yeah. to this not happening. Um, no, that's ridiculous. Yeah, there is um, like a small tidbit of information that I kind of just left out because there was enough outrageous shit in here. But there was a point where Shirley like ran. I don't know if she ran out of money to pay for attorneys or if like a, the free attorneys just stopped being willing to take her case, whatever. Um, but for the uh, was it the appeal or like when she got let out on bail, she had basically written a letter to um, Justice Derek Green, who, if you remember, was the judge who uh, ruled that there was enough evidence to send her back for trial. Mm -hmm. She, like, wrote him a letter basically saying that she didn't have, like, legal representation anymore, but she, like, wanted help doing this, that, and the other. And he sends a letter. He sends her a letter back, which is the <laughs> most shocking part in the first place. Okay. Basically saying that, like, oh, I'm not, like, assigned to this case anymore, so I can't tell you anything. But also, here are the steps to write your own appeal. And, like, literally gives her instructions on how to properly write her own appeal. Maybe, Our... maybe help some people that you think are, like, wrongfully incarcerated or, like, deserve to be granted an appeal like why are you helping this woman honestly even if you're not associated with the case again another conflict of interest i like, think isn't that just shocking yes but not considering this lady every time we talked about her in the last episode we kept saying like jody arias vibes so no yeah. Yeah, because she could have made even the most of the officers do shit for her, except that one that she tries to flirt with in the interrogation room. And he's like, gross. But here's the thing. I don't I I hate to say this, but not she doesn't look like Jodi Arias. I've never looked her up. Yeah, I feel as though there was an element to Jodi Arias that because she is this pretty little thing if I you know, will yeah. that i don't i don't i don't know i do think that her being a doctor had a lot to do with a lot of the decisions that were made here i think that there was a lot of privilege given to her and benefit of the doubt given to her like character and things like that because 
well, how could she possibly? She has been through medical school and she is this, you know, she has this. Yeah, she's uh, just very regular looking. Sure. Yeah, exactly. She's not. Yeah, yeah. she's just super like, normal looking. She's not like this overly cute, attractive, like young girl that could like seduce the cops. Like, yeah, it's not what you think when you hear of this like woman who has everyone wrapped around her finger and is so manipulative. No, I just think that she, A, was very manipulative. Mm -hmm. And B, there was a lot of, like, credence given to her yeah. because she's a doctor. It's like this status thing. I know. So that well, is the I case. appreciate it. You did great. Thank you again to Robin for the case suggestion. Yeah. Um, this was a really, really intense case intense case um and i'm i'm glad that we covered it so yeah yes and where can people find us at podcast by proxy on instagram facebook twitter threads. twitter sometimes tiktok mostly instagram i post threads all the time just my random train of thought oh katie's on threads on podcast by proxy i am a millennial through and through so i just cannot get off instagram um Oh. I tried the TikTok. I've tried the other things, and I just like consistently gravitate back to Instagram. So too old people. We are too old for that shit. But thank you. I love that using Instagram instead of TikTok is what is like deems us old nowadays. <laughs> oh boy. Hey, that's when people were like, I, "I'm still on Facebook. I don't even use Instagram." And it's like, "Oh, you're True. so old. You're such a mom." And we're that, we're that <laughs> age. Yeah. Okay. Well, enjoy the rest of your vacation. Katie's uh, on vacay yeah. and took time out of her day to do this with us. So we'll send her back on her vacay, but okay. we will talk to you again in a week. And again, if you have any case suggestions, anything you would like us to cover, any documentaries you've watched that you're like, oh, the, the girlies need to like see this and cover it and all the things. Love Email us, podcastbyproxy at gmail.com is way easier for me for case suggestions because yes. I literally just, I just search case suggestion and I pick something. Um, and that's how we like make a list of them and stuff too. DMs are like a bit hard to get through, but email is best and that's it. That's it for me. Okay. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. <gasps> okay. Bye. Bye. How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.